This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Even with massive protests against police abuse in 2020, policing reform at the state level has led only a handful of states to make ground-up reforms that fundamentally deliver accountability to police. Virginia is working to advance a number of reforms. Nick Freitas is a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. We talked about the politics and policy of policing last week. It's probably uh, tempting for a lot of people to imagine that there was some sort of uh, golden age of a relationship between police and and the broader public um, with respect to police abuse. We're seeing it a lot more uh, than we have in the past just by virtue of the technology that's available to us. But to the to the extent that there might have been this uh, golden age, when when do you see or how do you see the relationship between the police and some communities breaking down? Well, I, I think there's a couple different ways to look at it. I mean, one of the things I always think is important is to say compared to what? I, I think when you look at law enforcement practices in, in the last couple of decades compared to law enforcement practices either in the United States or the rest of the world, I, I think there is a lot of there's a lot to be proud of with respect to our, our processes, our procedures, our training and things like that. There's also a lot to still be concerned about. So one of the things that I think seen within community relationships within law enforcement is obviously there are specific communities within the United States that have a, a significant amount of distrust with the police departments that are serving them. And I think some of that is politically motivated. I think other aspects of it are just based off of experiences that people have had, sometimes experiences over long periods of time. And when you have that across multiple generations, you create a great deal of mistrust. And I think the the key question that all of us are trying to answer here is how do we provide law enforcement organizations which are uniquely dedicated to the concerns within the communities that they're serving and that are capable through their tactics, techniques, procedures, processes, standard operating procedures, to be able to build that sort of long-term trust with those communities. And there's, I think there's good ways to do that. And I think there's counterproductive ways to do that. And one of the things, and and it, it feels like more and more you're being forced politically into two different camps. Either it's this is all about the the police being horrible and the you know systematic racism within you know power structures or it's the police can do absolutely no wrong and what are you talking about and 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 I, and I don't think either one really reflects reality and so I think it really comes down to understanding what are what are community priorities and what do we expect out of our law enforcement what do we expect them to be able to have the capacity to handle um, and then how do we make sure that resources are allocated in such a way to where we create positive incentives in order to creating that trust with the community as opposed to perverse incentives, which might sound good on paper, but end up creating an environment where either A, police are focusing on things that the community doesn't want them to, or nobody wants to be a police officer. Um, and so I, I think that's I think if we put the discussion back on what I think most of us agree on, which is we want p- police departments that are trusted by their communities that focus on community priorities. When we put the focus there, then we can have a, a positive policy discussion on what actually attains that and actually have a discussion about potential second and third order effects, unintended consequences, et cetera. What do we ask police to do that? you believe that they're just ill-equipped to do? Well, I think more and more there, there's a there's a psychological component. There's an expectation within the general public to say that when the police show up, 
they're obviously policing is unique to pretty much every other you know, government field with maybe the exception of the, of the military that we expect law enforcement to go into incredibly dangerous, hostile um, situations and make split second decisions with respect to what they should do. Right. It's it's the agent of the military or it's the agent of the government that we expect to engage in enforcement. Right. To, to use aggressive action um, in order to carry out the laws of the land. And, and that's a unique operating environment. And I think what most of us expect is that when we call up the police, they're going to be able to show up. They're going to be able to de-escalate a situation when uh, they can. When they can de-escalate a situation, we expect them to use judicious amounts of force in order to protect the innocent. Um, I, I think, and I think that's all reasonable. I think we also need to understand that that is also a very complex situation um, especially when you're dealing with a violent person, especially when you're dealing with mental health, especially when you're dealing with domestic violence uh, issues, where now you have someone, someone calls the police, you show up, and the, per- the very person that called the police is now defending the person that they called the police to protect them from. And so when it comes to what do we expect out of law enforcement? You talk to any police officer now, they're like, look, I'm not just a cop. I'm supposed to be a marriage counselor and I'm supposed to be a mental health expert. And I'm supposed to understand to, you know, to deal with mental illness in a way that I've never been trained to do. Um, on top of, I'm expected to do all of these other things as well. And so I think that's the part where one, we need to have a reasonable expectation of what you expect out of human beings simply because they put on a uniform and go through training. And I think two, we also need to understand that a lot of the problems I think we see within law enforcement have been created by politicians, by legislators that have either passed laws which put police in, in aggressive situations with the public when they there doesn't need to be that. And two, either uh, and creates this perverse incentive structure where, you know, some federal legislators decided, well, we really want to focus on this particular type of criminal activity. And so we're going to entice local and state law enforcement agencies through funding, through training, through civil asset forfeiture to prioritize federal concerns over local concerns. And so I, I think all of those things in, end up creating perverse incentives that achieve the opposite of what we what we want to see. Drug laws. Yeah, no, I think drug laws are, are a perfect example of that. Um, you know, we, we've gotten into a situation where it's not that, you know, and, and again, I this oftentimes breaks down into a conversation. Are you, you know, are you pro-drug or are you anti-drug? And I, I don't, I don't think that's the proper way to define the argument. The, the question is, is that when you have a particular community, based off of those communities' concerns, do they want officers within their department being pulled away on some sort of, you know, federal joint task force with respect to drugs? Or would they rather have their law enforcement there dealing with issues that are, are desperately important to their community? And, and is, there, is there times when those things can overlap? Sure. Um, but the question is, is who's deciding? For lawmakers, they have a lot of priorities. They pass laws. They expect law enforcement to then go out and enforce those laws. And then you look at clearance rates uh, for cities for things like homicide. And uh, I, I I don't know how to put the onus back on lawmakers to say, maybe something needs to give here. Maybe you need to be more tolerant of X in order to get better results on Y. Well, and I, and again, politicians generally get elected based off of how, how well they make promises to the electorate, right? I think Thomas Sowell said it best that when we, the reason why shameless liars do so well in politics is because when we expect things that the government shouldn't do or can't possibly do, then only liars suffice as candidates. And so the, the problem is, is that when we start to look at the, 
you know, the very hard work of policymaking, then yeah, I think we need to remember that men and women in law enforcement live at the business end of every stupid idea a legislator has had. And a lot of times you will see a legislator put something out as a, as a policy or an objective without any real understanding of, of how they're actually going to achieve it. And especially when we're talking about criminal law, I always like to remind my colleagues, it, whenever you pass this, you are essentially saying, I think this is so important that I am willing to send one of my constituents who happens to be in law enforcement over to another one of my constituents and use violence in order to achieve this end objective. Is it really that important? And, and that doesn't seem to be a question that actually computes. Some of the loudest legislators with respect to you know, issues with police or their mistrust of police are also some of the most prolific in passing a whole host of laws, which are essentially creating the environment where we have more altercations between the police and, and the civilian population. And so some of it is about having a healthy respect for just, just the practical limitations of what the government can achieve through policymaking or through lawmaking. And then part of it, too, is about, again, what sort of incentive structures have we created within our law enforcement communities? If, if, you're, if you're just looking at an Excel spreadsheet and it says, OK, we have this many arrests or we have this many convictions, and so therefore our community is better or safer, OK, well, is, is that the best metric to use? It's, it's certainly the easiest to calculate, but is it the best metric to use? And I think in a lot of ways, we've, we've pushed our law enforcement agencies into this. And we see the same thing with other government things like standardized testing within schools, where now all of a sudden the standardized test scores are the gold standard for whether or not your education system is actually achieving your, the desired end states. Well, now CompStat is the, you know, d- you know, the metric to use to decide whether or not a law enforcement agency is doing its job. I'm not to say it can't be a useful tool. But when, when we make numbers on an Excel spreadsheet, the primary way to determine success or failure within a department, we run into a lot of problems. Um, so I, I think part of it is just more humility on behalf of legislators. Um, and then part of it is recognizing that the more trust a department has with its community, the less likely you're going to see adverse actions or adverse uh, results as a result of the relationship between the police and the community. And so the question is, is how do we, how do we achieve that? I'm going to rattle off a couple of things at you. How important is it that police live in the community that they're supposed to be serving? So I think, I actually think that depends. Um, so for instance, um, you have some departments where they don't require that you live within the city limits in order to serve that city and other departments, you have requirements that you live within the city limits in order to serve that city. And I don't think you necessarily see, um, I don't think you. Ne- I don't think that automatically equals a more community responsive community environment. Um, so I, I don't think it's a. I, I think it can be beneficial, but I don't think it's the end all be all. Um, I, I think it was New Orleans that required that you actually live within city limits, and the New Orleans Police Department has had some real issues with corruption. Um, what I think is more important is the flip side. Of course, is Ferguson, Missouri. Yeah. Well, I think what's I think what's more important is. How much experience does an officer have working within that community? I don't think they necessarily have to you know, move there and live in that community. But the question is, is how much experience do they have working there? So like my father was LAPD. He worked a particular division within LAPD for 12 years. Well, over a 12-year period, he knew the families. He knew the people on his beat. He knew the people that, that he was working with. He knew the kid that was doing something stupid that needed to have a stern talking to and dropped off at his folks' house 
versus the kid that was doing something that was really going to hurt somebody else or, or create a victim. Um, but the only reason he knew that was because he'd been there for 12 years. He'd been there when that kid was seven, right? And he, and he, you know, I mean, it was teenagers. And so I, I think that's the sort of, that's the sort of connection that you need to build with the community. Um, do you make it a requirement that officer live in that community? I don't know that that's the right answer. Um, but do you allow for police officers to be able to work in a particular environment year after year in order to build those relationships, foster those relationships, bring in other officers that are new to that division, team them up with officers that have been there for a long time and allow them to do that? Yeah, I think that's really important. What's the role of police unions? So I, my problem with any public sector employee union is that you're essentially operating in an environment where you don't have the same relationship that you do in a, in a voluntary private sector union. So taking away for a second the idea of these closed shop states where literally the state can compel you to join a union, whether if you, if you go into a particular industry. In a, in a private sector union, you have two different bodies with s- certain common interests and certain competing interests. Um, And then they come to the table and they negotiate in order to find something that's equitable for both sides. In a public sector employee union, that's not the same case. You now have a a union that is negotiating with the very people that they helped get elect. And so the entire dynamic of the negotiation is thrown off both by that dynamic and also the dynamic that the people that are negotiating with are not the ones that are paying their salaries. That's the taxpayers. And so even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was not exactly a bastion of, of liberty, recognized the potential problem and conflicts of interest within public sector employee unions. And I think you see that manifested in law enforcement as well. Now, I certainly understand law enforcement wanting to have representation, wanting to have access to due process of law. I, I get that part. Um, but I, I think overall, it goes beyond police unions. It goes to all public sector employee unions that we need to understand that the entire dynamic there within negotiation is very, very different than what you would see in the private sector. And, and I think there's perverse incentives created there when essentially the person you're negotiating with is not spending their own money and are the people that you helped elect. And you're taking your union dues in order to help the elect the people that you're going to be negotiating with. And again, I just, I think that creates a whole host of perverse incentives. So I certainly understand making sure that law enforcement officers are afforded the same due process of law that we would get for anybody else. Uh, but I think, I think we've seen a lot of problems where um, you see certain unions that it, it almost seems like more of their energy is focused on protecting the very officers that are giving the rest of the police a bad name than they are focusing on things that I think we would all understand with respect to maybe like, you know, better contracts or, you know, better training or equipment. I spoke with some folks uh, from the Better Cities Project uh, at the State Policy Network annual meeting recently. And one of the complaints that they had about the, the collective bargaining process is that it's almost done entirely in secret. Uh, and the public uh, becomes aware of the bundle of goods that have been delivered to either police or teachers or, or, or the, the whatever the public sector entity is. Uh, and in many cases, accountability provisions absent a state law or absent some sort of uh, city ordinance, they're on the table too. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I think it creates a big well, one. Again, it goes back to the perverse incentive. If, if the very person you're negotiating with is not the actual 
is, is not the actual people that you're serving. So you're, you're not negotiating with the people. You're negotiating with a representative that was elected and, and potentially if they were elected because they received a, a huge campaign contribution or a lot of advocacy by a particular public sector employee union. Well, now you've, you have to wonder, are they, are they negotiating on behalf of the people that they represent? Or are they negotiating on behalf of the entity that helped them get elected? And, and that's, that's a very real question. And I think it's absurd for people to assume that that sort of perverse incentive or potential conflict of interest doesn't exist in that particular negotiation. What has Virginia done? So Virginia is now, we, we've crossed the road over into more public sector employee unions. Um, what we're starting to see now is the only way they were able to get it passed was through doing local options. And so now you, you are going to see a lot more collective bargaining, but it's going to differ by locality. Some, some localities are deciding to institute it. Other localities are not deciding to institute it. And what's interesting, it is, I think it is going to provide kind of a good test with respect to what actually achieves, you know, better, more effective, more efficient results. Because again, there's, there's also competing interests here. You know, the, the first priority is to have a police force that is able to execute its job properly while I, I would say while protecting civil liberties and understanding the sort of environment that you're you're operating in uh, with respect to a free society. The other is the efficiency. Like, are you wisely using tax dollars in order to achieve the results you want? And then are, are you creating an environment where we're actually encouraging, um, you know, the sort of people that we want to be in law enforcement to both join law enforcement and stay in law enforcement? And so there there's. There's going to be a, a you know, pretty soon here with the next couple of years in Virginia, we're going to have a great way to analyze all of that and determine uh, whether or not the course of action we took was the better one. What about uh, broader policing reform? So a lot of the policing reform, there was there was a challenge to qualified immunity, uh, which actually failed in the Senate. And I think in part it was because I, I think there's some of us that would like to see reform to qualified immunity along the lines that Justice Clarence Thomas talked about. There's other people who just want to get rid of it altogether. I always find it interesting when people want to get rid of qualified immunity for law enforcement, but, but not for any other government agency. Um, so and it failed. There was there was a lot of restrictions placed on law enforcement with respect to what they could use um, regarding non-lethal force, what sort of equipment that they could uh, get with some of these programs within um, the military. The one that I thought the one that we had the most agreement on was actually decertification. And this was something that where you saw, you know, a, a great deal of bipartisan support, a great deal of support from the law enforcement community, because it, it was ridiculous to have an environment where someone could literally be fired, you know, and, and maybe they were in a situation where they couldn't be convicted for something. There wasn't ample evidence to convict them of a crime. However, that law enforcement agency was convinced that this person was not conducting themselves in a way that was advantageous for their overall mission or to support or protect the community. And so they fire them. It used to be that they'd fire them and the decertification process was was almost non-existent or was very, very difficult to achieve. So they just go a few counties over and they get another job within law enforcement. And so one of the things that we, we were trying to adjust was this idea that, no, when, when a police officer has demonstrated um, that you know, they, they, they're, they're, not a, they're not especially good at doing their job, while protecting civil liberties, then we need to give we need to give more power to the leadership within that department to be able to decertify that officer so they can't continue to, to serve uh, in that sort of capacity in, in a different agency or, or, or different county or town or whatever it might be. Yeah, you see in a lot of states, uh, like Wisconsin recently had a case of hundreds of officers who uh, during the process of decertification or before that process could be concluded resigned. So that, that they then could seek uh, other employment 
uh, as a police officer because the, the decertification process apparently just sort of evaporates at, at the point at which an officer resigns. So in Kentucky, uh, according to Josh Crawford of the, the Pegasus Institute, who I spoke with at the State Policy Network, um, he says that uh, there is now, in, in Kentucky at least, an affirmative duty of officers who witness wrongdoing, uh, witness misconduct to report that or they themselves will, could face decertification. Uh, how similar is Virginia's uh, change? Virginia just passed something similar to that effect. Um, I don't think we did it as well as Kentucky did. <laughs> um, because again, I, I think what a lot of this, what a lot of this goes down to is, um, one of the things politicians are famous for is passing legislation based off of their intentions without understanding how it's going to work in the real world and what the second and third order effects will be. And so, like you see this emphasis on civilian review boards. So we, we like the idea of more community involvement with respect to police priorities and police practice. The question is, is what sort of authority should such boards have over law enforcement, especially when they're, they're not really familiar with tactics and these procedures and why they exist. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. No-knock warrants. You know, you have, you have some people within the liberty movement that just say we need to get rid of no-knock warrants altogether. There, there's, there's no practical case for it. Well, I'm in the liberty movement and I always ask the question like, okay, what about hostage rescue? Am I, am I really supposed to go up to the door and knock on the door before I go in to, to conduct a hostage rescue environment? And, and, I, and most people always look at me like, okay, well, no, I, I understand that. Okay, well, then you're not for zero no-knock warrants. What you want is a lot more reform in how they do it. Because the problem with no-knock warrants, as I see it, arose not when the police had to do a no-knock warrant because there was a, a defined threat, not just to law enforcement, but to somebody else that might be in the building or in the house or to other members of the community if all of a sudden a shootout gets going. But all of a sudden it became about evidence collection. It was, you know, I, I think you might have drugs in your house or I have evidence that you might have drugs in your house. And so I'm going to get a no-knock warrant so you can't flush the evidence. Okay, well, now we have to get into a cost-benefit analysis question, right? Is, is it really worth risking the potential violence that could ensue from a no-knock warrant when there's all kinds of other factors that come into play? Like, what if you have the wrong house? Or what if there's people in the house that you didn't anticipate being there? Is it, is it worth getting into a gunfight? with somebody that is now in a position that doesn't know if you are the police or someone else coming to their house in order to preserve whatever drugs that you think you're going to recover on on site, right? That I think that is a, a practical way for us to stand and go like, you know what? I don't know if the cost benefit analysis weighs out on this. Um, but by the same token, we can see certain select environments where a no-knock warrant might be appropriate. And those are the sort of questions that we, we have to be able to ask. Those are the sort of, you know, second and third order effects that we have to consider when we're looking at this policy. It's really easy and it's really popular to just get up and say, get rid of this or ban this or do this. Okay. <laughs> how, how, how are the very police officers that we still expect to go out and do their job? How are they going to react to this? Um, and, and again, I, I think when we get back to what do we want, right? What we, what we want is a police department that respects civil liberties that is, is well-trained enough to de-escalate situations and is focused on community priorities instead of what, you know, the federal government or state government might want, like community priorities. Great. I, I, there's a way that we can make incentives to do that. And a lot of it, a lot of it actually includes the government not doing things that it's already doing. States have the general police power. Uh, the federal government does not, but the federal government spends a lot of money in local areas. You alluded to earlier the fact that federal priorities sometimes drive local police departments to behave in ways that they otherwise would not. Uh, how do you how do you draw that 
line and how do you, you know, cleave those that relationship in such a way that localities really do have a much broader control, you know, absence, absent broad civil civil rights violations within a community. How do we uh, get the federal government essentially out of the local policing business? I think there's two ways to do it. One of them has to do with uh, on the federal side and some of it has to do with on the state and local side. Like I, I carried civil asset forfeiture reform for like three years uh, in the General Assembly. We finally got it passed last year. Um, Delegate Marcus Simon, who I generally do not agree with on on much of anything, but we both really agreed on this issue. And he had co-patroned the bill when I carried it. I co-patroned the bill when when he carried it. And and we got that passed. But I, I think that was really important because civil asset forfeiture, and, and I'm sure your audience is pretty familiar with this, but anybody that else might be watching, you know, civil asset forfeiture is essentially the government's ability to confiscate your property, not because you did anything wrong or, or even knew that something was going on, but because your property was used in the commission of a criminal act. So you loan your car to your cousin, your cousin runs drugs on I-81. He gets picked up. Not only do they arrest your cousin and confiscate the drugs, but now they can potentially confiscate your vehicle. And then you can lose your vehicle, even though you had no idea that you were not a party to the criminal act at all. Well, it's even it's even broader than that. I mean, uh, civil forfeiture I, well, can that's be just an example. Right. But, but it, even being suspected no. that we think you yeah. might be involved in a crime, they f- they flip the onus from law enforcement proving yeah. that you did commit a crime to you having to prove the negative. Well, and, and they like to do it too, because the preponderance of evidence or, or the, the threshold for what you had to prove in court was much less than if they were actually trying to convict you of a criminal activity. And so, you know, we, we came in and said, no, the, the government doesn't get to arbitrarily confiscate your property because they think it might've been used in a, in a, in a criminal act. Um, but a lot of law enforcement agencies were incentivized um, to, to engage in civil asset forfeiture because it was a way to, it was a way to boost their budgets. And then you also had situations where even when, when we put in restrictions on state and local law enforcement from being able to do that, well, then the, the workaround a lot of times is, okay, well, now I'm going to be uh, subdivided off to a federal agency. So now I'm, I'm on loan to that federal agency. And now when I confiscate it, I get a part of the civil asset forfeiture that the feds have taken. And so you know, some of the better civil asset forfeiture law has been not only restrictions on how we do it within the state, but also limiting the ability of state and local agencies to be able to engage in, you know, joint task force would be loaned off to a federal agency and then be able to say, oh, but I get to keep this. So no, what we want is to say that, look, if you convict someone of a crime and, you know, that laptop was used to, you know, launder money or that vehicle was, was being actively used by a criminal to engage in criminal activity, I, I don't have a problem necessarily with criminal asset forfeiture, right? Um, I, I do have a huge problem with the way that we were conducting civil asset forfeiture. So that was one of the ways that we could actually disincentivize departments from, and, and one of the things that I did on the other side was I said, look, I understand that you guys rely on some things with civil asset forfeiture um, in order to fund training and other things that are actually useful and good for your department. So here's what I'm going to do. In, instead of creating this policing for profit incentive, we're going to take this away, but I also believe that, yes, you you do need the training that you're trying to go through. So we're going to put a budget item in for that, and we're going to pay for that the way we should, which is to say that this is a useful end state. This is a legitimate function of government. Here's the funding in order to do it. And now we're, we're removing the incentive both legally and practically. Um, another thing that I think we need to focus on, and, and one of the things I always encourage people to do is read Eleanor Ostrom. Um, I think she has done some great work. First woman to be uh, given the, the equivalent of Nobel Prize for economics. But she actually left the lab, right? She left, the, she left academia to go actually and, and do ride-alongs and actually you know, be in the car with officers. And one of the things she discovered was that 
back when we had a lot of small departments um, serving smaller communities, there was, by its very nature, a lot more community focus with respect to priorities. And then there was this police consolidation movement. And it was this idea, and it, it kind of started in the 20s, but it really kicked off in the, in the 70s and 80s. It was this idea that it's going to be more efficient and more effective to share resources among several small departments by rolling them all up into large metropolitan police departments. And from, from again, from an Excel spreadsheet standpoint, that makes sense. The practical reality on the ground was is that now you had a lot more people that were serving communities that they were not familiar with. You had promotion and you had promotion structures that said that if you wanted to rise within the ranks of a of a large metropolitan police department, you had to serve in multiple different geographical areas. You had to serve within uh, multiple different aspects of the department. And again, that might make sense from a general leadership position, but what it also did was it created an environment where your your leadership within the department was not connected to communities that they were actually serving. And you had police officers, you know, good police officers that if you wanted to promote, well, you better not stay in one division for too long because you've got to move around. And one of the things that Eleanor Ostrom recommended, and, and, and again, a large part of that too was also federalized incentive to move to these national departments. It was state level incentive to move to these uh, departments in order to get state funding and state training and federal training. And one of the things Eleanor Ostrom talked about was it, it makes perfect sense to consolidate certain assets that smaller departments might not use as regularly. So like a, you know, your forensic department or maybe a SWAT team or maybe some sort of specialized, you know, canine unit that, that doesn't need to be used by these smaller departments. But one of the things she advocated for was don't get rid of the local department because that local department, the incentive structure, the natural incentive structure within a local department is to be very, very concerned with local priorities. And the moment you make that a part of a larger organization, well, then by its very nature, the de- the larger department is making priorities that might not serve. And, and maybe it serves the majority of the communities, but you're always going to leave, you know, 49% of them out uh, by the very nature of it. So, so keep that localized control and then just consolidate the various assets that can then be used, um, you know, when they're needed. And, and that smaller department doesn't have to carry the full financial burden of having it in-house all the time. Um, but I, I think most of us kind of intuitively understand that, that a larger an organization gets, the more it has to you know, prioritize among several different concerns. And if you, can, if you can keep that smaller and more connected to the community they're serving, then they are, by its very nature, going to focus more on those community concerns as opposed to the, the concerns of the larger organization. And I, I, think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also one of those solutions that we can talk about where you would get, I think, broad agreement that that makes sense. And, it, and it's also a situation where we recognize that this is not an either or proposition between effective policing and criminal justice reform. This is not a solution where you know, the cops are the bad guys, or it's, you know, it's all about the, the community is the one that has the problems. It, it's about recognizing that people operate off of incentives. That doesn't change when you put on a, a blue uniform. And so let's create the correct incentives. Nick Freitas is a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.